Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be focusing on verses 8 through 12. So I didn't give Ian any slides, uh, just because maybe didn't feel like there was a need to, but I did put a title to this sermon. Uh, it's called Strangers in a Strange Land. Uh, and if you're familiar with 1 Peter, if, if you've been participating in the monthly Bible challenge, um, I chose 1 Peter for this month after I kind of talked with Jacob Candler and thought it would be good, one, for me as I prep, but then also because I think there's a lot for us to learn from Peter's epistle here. Um, so, but if you're anything like me, you grew up listening to your parents' music, and my dad was born in 70, so he was a product of the late 70s, early 80s, and loved rock and roll. So I grew up listening to his music in the car, whether we went to the grocery store or went to our grandparents. It was taken from an album uh, by Iron Maiden. So some of you are like, who are they? And then some of you are like, I know who Iron Maiden is. Um, so Strangers in a Strange Land, and it comes from an album called Somewhere in Time, which actually happens to be my favorite album of theirs. But I, I thought it was fitting given the context of Peter's letter. And the title of this may have gone better with the very first sermon in this epistle because Peter addresses who he's writing to as exiles, strangers. Uh, and even in chapter 2, he refers to them as sojourners, those who wander. Um, and it, it's where we are too. This isn't our home, yet here we are, called to live in the light of the gospel wherever God has placed us. So truly, we are strangers in a strange land. We find ourselves in the middle of Peter's letter, and I kind of want to give a little bit of a uh, summary of where we've been since we kind of had a month off of our teaching uh, and, and kind of dial us into where we are now. So the very first part of Peter's letter, he highlights their redemption in Christ, how because of Jesus they have an inheritance uh, that is imperishable, how they've been redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ and how they ought to live in light of those things. And if you're taking notes, like Mr. Candler told me, uh, you can see that in chapter 1, verse 21, and then chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 11. Then in verse 12 of chapter 2, Peter gets very specific with how these believers who are exiles scattered in Asia Minor, how they are to engage with those around them. And verse 12 is, is really pivotal for both understanding all that's come before uh, where we are now and understanding where we are. And so he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And just as he said in chapter one, but as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. And so we see the conduct of a person reveals what's on the inside. Recall what our Lord said when confronted by the Pharisees on eating with unwashed hands in Matthew chapter 15. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Earlier in chapter 12, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Simply put, what is on the inside will make its way out. And if we truly have tasted that the Lord is good, then it should manifest itself in our lives. Peter will then go on to relating to human institutions and governments, 
Thank you, Josh. Slaves or servants relating to their masters. Thank you, Aaron. Husbands and wives relating to one another. Thank you, Ian. Then to land us right where we are now, verses 8 through 12. Archbishop Robert Layton, who was a minister in the Church of Scotland, in his introduction to his commentary on 1 Peter says this, The heads of doctrine contained in it are many, but the main are these, faith, obedience, and patience. The first to establish them in believing, the second to direct them in doing, and the third to comfort them in suffering. I think that's where we are tonight is that second one, focusing on obedience, to direct them in doing. So the plan for tonight, we've got five verses. We'll focus in on verse 8, which I think has a lot to do with us relating to one another in the church. Verse 9, relating to our enemies or those who are not of the faith and how we respond to them. And then verses 10 through 12, which I believe is a good way to summarize it, is the hope of a life lived for good. So, again, if you have not already uh, turned to your Bibles, chapter 3 of 1 Peter, we're going to read the text, I will pray, and then we'll get on. Starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." If you would join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this evening that once again we could gather as your people in your name uh, to worship you, to sit under your word, uh, and to be encouraged, admonished, called to repentance and faith in your Son. I pray that you would use me as a mouthpiece in all my faults and frailties uh, to bring you glory, to edify your church, and to point them towards your Son. I pray that you would lift our eyes to see you, to see you as good and holy and our great and everlasting Father. We love you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 8, he says, Finally, which means that he is concluding everything that he has said up until this point regarding how we ought to live in this state of exile. He He admonishes all of them to have these five qualities about themselves. And I think this verse highlights specifically how we ought to relate to one another as believers, where verse 9 will teach us how to respond to the outside world. So what I'd like to do is dive into each one, tease out why Peter would choose these, and then seek to apply them as we go. So the first that he mentions, mentions is unity of mind. And as some translations would say, be like-minded, be all of one mind, or be harmonious. And something interesting that I found here, which Matt will definitely let me know if this is not correct, uh, I found this interesting in my study of the Greek here, just trying to see how these words came together. Uh, This first word used here uh, is what theologians, or or probably any people who study language, 
call a hapax legomena. It's a word only that only occurs once in a given context. The context in our case is the New Testament. And three out of the five words he uses here in verse eight are only used once in the entirety of the New Testament. So normally when we do a, a word study, we're able to look and see where a word is used in other places of scripture to help gain some context for how it's used. But here we have to use what Paul, excuse me, Peter has given us. So what does it mean to have this unity of mind? Is Peter calling them to believe exactly the same thing across the board? Not a bad thing to desire. I think it is something that we should pursue, but I don't think that is it. Rather, what I think Peter is doing with admonishing the believers with these things is to make sure they are pre prepared for what is coming. So what do I mean by that? At this point, they've already experienced trials and testing. You see that in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. And they will be experiencing more. See verse 12 of chapter 4. And he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. They will need these qualities to handle suffering and trials well. But what should the believers have unity about? I believe it is regarding why they are where they are. What has placed them in this situation? Besides the providence of God, which is overwhelmingly true, it's the gospel. Some of you may say, okay, that's an easy answer. But it's their connection to Jesus Christ and believing in his name that has landed them in this place. It's why you're here. Unity around this message is crucial for the church. Without it, we wouldn't exist. We would be a fairly lame social club, to say the least. Right? The gospel unites us. And it's crucial for these first century believers to be united around this so that they don't lose hope when trials and tribulations and suffering come their way. So it begs us to ask, how often are we reminding ourselves of the gospel? How often do we dwell on the great story of redemption? Is it truly the center of our lives? Do we make sense of everything else through God's marvelous work of reconciliation? And I think at all times and in all things, we must keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. We must never forget what unites us. As the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Unity around the gospel is crucial for the survival of the church. Second, he calls them to be sympathetic. And this can easily be paired with tender-hearted, the fourth word Peter uses. And I think these are fairly straightforward. We seek to have an understanding of where our fellow brothers and sisters are. Wayne Grudem, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says this about the word translated for a tender heart. He says, it's a helpful translation of a word meaning caring, compassionate, not only in actions, but even more in one's feelings or emotions. This is a word that is used by one of the other apostles. It's used in Ephesians chapter 4 by the apostle Paul. And he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And I think these both paint the picture of us, one, being vulnerable with one another about our lives. And two, entering into 
and sharing life with others up close and not from a distance. To actually get our hands dirty with the work and understand how our brothers and sisters are doing. It's easy to say, I'll pray for you and never do it. I've done it, right? It's easy to, to, to give that good gesture, but then actually not follow through. But it's a whole different thing to say it and do it. As the Apostle John would write in his first epistle, he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. Let us also resolve now by God's strength to love one another well. Therefore, seek to be involved in this community. Here, this place where you are. Seek to be involved here. You can't show compassion or be tender-hearted to another if you are a hermit. And I would even argue that you can't be a Christian if you're a hermit. There's no such thing. A life following Christ is done in community. Now, some of you may say that you don't have a lot of time, and I'll be the first to admit that I say that often because it does feel like that. And I would battle you to say who maybe has less time because uh, I do feel like I don't have any, but I think that's excuse. No one is expecting you to be the first one to show up every single thing the church does. I think sometimes and too often we put expectations on ourselves that no one else has. And I think the best thing is to start small. Show up on Sunday. I had the opportunity to play in a golf scramble with uh, my company I work for. I've worked for them for three and a half years now. And every year, only once, they do a company golf scramble. Lots of fun. Um, I went two years ago, and I wish, in hindsight, that I would have been here with you all. Right? But when my boss came in and said, hey, David, are you going to be there? I'd really like to see you there. I said, no, I'm going to church instead. And that isn't to toot my own horn, but because I was given a choice to either, I would say, fellowship or have fun with people that I work with or to gather with the people of God and to get to know them better and to worship alongside them. And that's what I chose, to worship with the gathered body, to receive the word of God expounded and applied to our lives and to partake of the Lord's table with eagerness and faith. I think, at bare minimum, this should be our priority. If you can't do anything else throughout the rest of the week in getting plugged in, at least show up on Sunday. People want to see you. They do. They do. But grow from there. Join one of the Bible studies we have, because we have three or four of them at this point, a fellowship, fellowship group, or if those are too much, ask if someone can grab coffee with you. I love coffee. Denton loves coffee. I think Robert likes coffee. I definitely know Matt loves coffee, right? Someone would love to get to know you better. But I think it's safe to say that we cannot be tenderhearted and show compassion if we don't know one another. And it takes vulnerability and shared interest, as we will soon discuss. Sandwiched in the middle here, he calls for brotherly love. And this brotherly love stems from our unity in Christ. Because of our common redemption, we are thus to love one another with affection. We would show our blood family. John, in his first epistle, writes, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. To love Christ is to love one another. To love Jesus is to love his people. And now this isn't an easy thing because people are sinful. Uh, but we absolutely need this kind of love if we are going to grow in Christ together 
to grow as a church. All that we do, whether towards one another or even outsiders, should be done from a heart of love, one that has been given mercy when it didn't deserve it. And by this kind of love, we spur one another on. We pick one another up as we pilgrimage here on earth. But this doesn't happen if we aren't united together in our focus. If we are not a part of a community centered on the gospel, we cannot do this. And you cannot sit on the sidelines and have this love. It's something that takes effort. It's not passive. It takes knowing others and being known. And lastly, he calls for a humble mind. Now, we could exhaust ourselves with scripture on the wickedness of pride and the virtue of humility. And that would be time well spent. Maybe we'll do a study on it later, but for the sake of staying on course, we won't tonight. We'll only visit a couple things. Peter, in his final chapter, says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In a very frank manner, I think we can all agree that if you are around someone who exuberates pride, it's not fairly enjoyable. Uh, you kind of want to leave. So in a very practical point, humility puts us in a place to not only tolerate one another, but also to enjoy one another. If you have time tonight or this week, please read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's a great passage, and it matches with Peter here profoundly. But Paul says to his letter to the Philippians, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Humility is focusing less on yourself and more on others. It's thinking more about others quantitatively and less about yourself quantitatively. Not qualitatively, right? Not to think less of yourself, but to think less of yourself on a numbers scale. And I think all these things are worthy of us pursuing because I believe they provide rich soil for a church to grow and mature in. And he takes a, a, not a small detour, but he takes the focus maybe away from us a little bit. Instead of relating to one another as believers in Christ, how do we relate to those who may curse us? In verse 9, let's read it again. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Like Jesus and Paul, Peter urges his hearers to not take revenge. We're to not give back the evil that was given to us, rather the opposite. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where you've been tempted with the idea of revenge, you know that returning evil for evil, which I think we could all say is revenge, is fairly natural to the world around us. It's almost expected in most case, cases. But Jesus shows us the way of the kingdom of God is unlike that of this world. It's 180 degrees. To be a son or daughter of our Father in heaven is marked with blessing and loving and praying for those who persecute and hate us. If, again, you have time this week, and for those who are taking notes, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Now, this takes real humility. It takes real mental, spiritual fortitude to not give to someone 
what they have coming. When the person cuts you off in traffic or steals a parking spot, and let's be honest, those are fairly minor things. But we suit up and we resolve to live like Christ because we have been given everything when we deserved nothing. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Romans 5, chapter 8. And Paul says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the basis for the Christian's goodwill to others. Even our enemies is the mercy we have received and continue to receive from God. That's the driving force in our response and interactions, both with one another and with those around us. We deserve separation from God because of our sin, but God in his great mercy orchestrated a way for us to be reconciled and experience fellowship with him through faith in his son. Matthew Henry in his commentary on 1 Peter says, a Christian's calling as it invests him with glorious privileges, sonship, daughtership, the Holy Spirit, so it obliges him to difficult duties. I'll read that again. A Christian's calling, as it invests him with glorious privileges, so it obliges him to difficult duties. It's absolutely true that we have been given an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. It's also true that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ and seated us with him in heaven. But it's also true in our earthly pilgrimage that we are to be holy as our God is holy. We should not look to the wisdom of the world for how to act, but rather to Christ and the example that he has set for us. Now the elephant in the room, maybe for some of you, is the latter half of verse 9. For to this you were called so that you may obtain a blessing. In my study, I found that some have made sense of this passage by relating it to salvation, based upon the Greek word used for obtain. However, I think Peter is simply stating that there is blessing from God available in this life for righteous conduct with a consciousness of God. All right, David, present your case. I think the strongest case for this is Peter's use of Psalm 34 for verses 10 through 12 of our passage. For it clearly promises God's blessing and care to those who do what is right. And we see this formula used elsewhere by Peter in his letter. Here are a few. Chapter 1, verse 8. Loving Christ leads to unutterable joy in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 2. Partaking of the spiritual milk leads to growing up towards salvation. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, wives being subject to their husbands leads to unbelieving husbands being one to Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 7, husbands living considerately with their wives leads to their prayers not being hindered. So this isn't proposing some workspace salvation. It's saying, no, living righteously does have consequences. And generally they are good consequences from God. So this formula is not foreign to Peter and his argument for blessing from God for doing good and pursuing good. Simply put, our actions do have consequences. And when they're good consequences, we rejoice. And when they're bad, it takes uh, wisdom to step back and evaluate what we've done and why we received what we received. So here at Redeemer, uh, the elders make it a practice to do expository preaching 
And a helpful definition is from the late John Stott. He says, to expound scripture is to bring out of the text what is there and to expose it to view. The expositor opens what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. And for us, that order is normally the text of scripture, which we'll read before we even get into the teaching, followed by the exposition. But here, Peter gives kind of the opposite. He gives the exposition first, verses 8 through 9, uh, and then presents the text to validate his position. Now let's move on to verses 10 through 12, where Peter quotes from Psalm 34. And I'd like to read it again. For whoever desires to love life, see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. First and foremost, I need to say that because you do good things, that it does not guarantee life will always go well for you. That everyone will love you, that you'll have a carefree life, that you'll live your best life now, because you won't. Neither the Old Testament prophets, our Lord, or the New Testament writers promise that. And on the contrary, they generally present the opposite. That because of your identity with Christ, you will be hated and persecuted. However, this is God's word, so we must take it at face value and believe what it says. And I think on a very basic level, these all make sense. The passage from Psalms reads like a proverb, like a good rule of thumb for life. If we as followers of Christ seek to do good as God has directed us to, we will be blessed. If you keep your tongue under control, if you turn away from evil, if you do good and seek and pursue peace, who is there to harm you? Really? Who? Even those who do not know God or want anything to do with him will generally be amicable to people who possess those qualities. But we have to realize that Peter's letter doesn't end there. He will use that very, very question. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? To provide teaching and instruction on suffering. Suffering for the name of Christ. For when you actually do suffer for righteousness' sake. So we see it isn't one or the other. It's not either you can have blessing for living uh, in agreeance with God's commands and what he has called us to, or the opposite. It's both and. And the hope for this isn't just to do good things to do good things. The hope here is that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. For as Proverbs 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the whole earth. See, God sees both the just and the unjust. But his ears are open to the prayers of the righteous. To those who love him, who are called by his name and his purposes. For even if or when we do come under suffering, God is there with us and for us. We can expect the Lord to walk near to us when we do good and when we come under suffering for doing good. So what do we do with Peter's brief exhortation? Five short, sweet verses. As Christians, 
our focus is always on Christ. That ultimately will fuel us to live in a manner which is indeed compassionate, clothed with humility, and filled with brotherly love. It will allow us to give blessing when we are cursed at, and it motivates us to pursue peace and to keep ourselves from evil. So fill your life with Christ. Prioritize time with him in prayer, in the reading of the Bible, and in fellowship with the church. And if you struggle with any of those things or want to grow with them, please ask. Like literally, please ask. Ask me, Robert, Denton, Josh, Adam, Matt, or whoever you feel comfortable talking to, because we would absolutely love to come alongside you and pursue Christ together, to help you walk in obedience to him. And I am confident that no one in this church will say, no, you need to find someone else or you need to do that by yourself. No one will turn you away if you approach them with that question. Second, we should strive to do good because it's the right thing to do. Even when no one else is doing it, or even when it may cost us something or everything, may we live lives that honor God in such a way that as Peter says in verse 12, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. That is the day when he returns, when Jesus comes back, that they would stand before God, once having shamed, spit upon and cursed believers in Christ, and they would glorify him. The goal with righteous living is to honor God, to bring him glory, and to point others to Christ. Let us rely not on ourselves, our strategies, our tactics. Let us rely on the Holy Spirit, who is at work in us, both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. So I asked Robert to um, play us, like to, to lead us in worship of, with a specific song tonight, and he said no, and I told him, okay, then, then I'm not preaching. Uh, uh, but one of my favorite songs that we do, uh, and we've done it a cappella the last couple times, and I think it's beautiful, and we're all in this space worshiping together. Um, but it's a, it's a quote from Psalm chapter 127, uh, but the song itself is All Glory Be to Christ by King's Kaleidoscope. And the psalmist says, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. You see, if the Lord is not with us, then we are merely striving after the wind. We're doing these things to do them, not because they have eternal significance. So unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And we indeed know, we can take this to the bank, that God is building a house. And we are the living stones, and Christ is our cornerstone. Let us run the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Church, if you would join me in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your word, that you have spoken to us, that we may know the path of life and follow it. And I pray that you would make all of us here today and those who would listen to this or read this portion of your word would become obedient from the heart. And we seek to, in everything that we do, whether word or deed, seek to honor you, to exalt your name, and to point others to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.